I'm Nick Hernandez, and you're listening to the Positivity Matters podcast. We talk about all things well-being. How can research on from positive psychology help us build community? Today, my guest is Gus Carlo. He's Professor, Director, Cultural Resiliency and Learning Center, uh, Equity Advisor in the School of Education at the University of California, Irvine. Welcome to the show. Thank you. Thank you very much. Glad to have you as a guest. And you come highly recommended from a, a former guest on the show, Dick Deekspear. So if Dick, if you're yeah. listening, thank you for the recommendation. And thank you, Gus, for uh, being on the show here. Well, again, thank you very much for having me here. And I will, you know, make sure to let Dick know that he's causing me to work more. i myself had become interested in positive psychology when at the workplace they had us take a a strengths finder and one thing led to another and at that time in 2006 i didn't know that positive psychology was a thing um and if i understand right your central focus and your research is in pro-social behavior and that you were actually at the very first positive psychology summit back in 1999, which took place here in Lincoln, Nebraska. Uh, I'm, my understanding is that there is a bunch of different uh, veins of research in that relate to well-being and human flourishing and that it was kind of a, maybe like a marketing, uh, an intellectual academic kind of marketing thing to call, to bring a bunch of those different threads under an umbrella and call it positive psychology. Uh, maybe tell us a little bit about the history of pro-social behavior research, uh, its relationship with positive psychology. What's the story? <laughs> yeah. yeah. Well, um, yeah, that sounds like a great place to start. Um, well, I think it's a, actually a quite interesting story because I, I'm not certain that from the get-go, um, pro-social behaviors were necessarily strongly tied uh, to positive psychology. Um, but it's clear that as one thinks about concepts of virtues and um, you know thriving and uh, positivity, um, you know, um, it there should be a natural con- connection there. Um, but the work in uh, pro-social behaviors actually started back in, really um, systematically started back in the 1960s. Um, uh, researchers, social psychologists like uh, Bib Latine and uh, Darley and others um, were um, sort of enamored with uh, the idea of trying to understand uh, bystander bystander intervention uh, situations, you know, situations where um, people were, uh, you know, getting harmed in some way in front of others, and and yet these bystanders, uh, many of them would not actually try to intervene and and help the victim. Um, that was being harmed or injured. Um, and so a series of studies were conducted in the 60s and 70s. And um, 
And that's sort of um, one way, or at least one of the ways in which um, research, serious research on um, pro-social behaviors, helping others, and altruism, helping others um, primarily to, for, with the intention to benefit others, um, often at a cost to oneself. And so you could imagine how these bystander intervention situations and you know somebody that's being attacked um, on a subway for example or something like that and um, you know uh, people are there it's in public and the question is you know um, who's willing to risk personal harm to themselves in order to try and um, help somebody who's apparently being attacked by someone uh, in, in that sort of public setting. Um, but um, we can also think about the beginnings of pro-social behaviors um, with um, work that had been done, uh, for example, um, by other researchers looking at um, and trying to understand um, you know, rescuers of Jews during the Holocaust and mm. um, uh, really trying to get a, a, a sense of, you know, what differentiates, what distinguishes persons that lived in Nazi Germany during that time, who, again, uh, often at personal risk to themselves or to their family members, were willing to um, try and rescue Jews uh, from the Holocaust um, and uh, protect them or hide them or or try to uh, allow them to somehow uh, escape Nazi Germany into uh, other countries where they'd be safer. And we know, of course, of the classic sort of uh, historical examples of these uh, kinds of persons like uh, the Oscar Schindlers of the world or the Victor Krugels, um, who, you know, uh, who hid Anne Frank and her family. Um, but we also know that there were thousands and thousands of others that probably will never actually um, uh, know um, their identities, who also um, tried to intervene in some form or manner. Many of them, of course, were probably killed um, and executed. Um, but, you know, when you have such powerful examples of human behavior, such powerful examples of the potential for positivity, for positive social behaviors, behaviors that can benefit, um, that are for the good of the majority of persons, that can benefit others, even if those others are not like us, um, you know, what we would, might term outgroup members um, or persons who are not, you know, uh, blood related to us. Um, you know, when we start to think about all of those examples in history and all of those examples in our own lives of persons that we've observed or that we've uh, gotten to know somehow that, you know, might engage in these kinds of behaviors on a daily basis, you know, um, volunteering 
at a food bank or um, you know, volunteering to care for um, relatives or for friends who might be, you know, uh, disabled or have some chronic illness or might be, you know, elderly persons. When we think about that, when we expand our our imagination about the potential and the possibilities for good out there in the world, we come to realize slowly that there is quite a bit of good out there in our world, in spite of all the negative attention that we that seems to you know hit us from all sides in terms of all the uh, terrible tragedies and uh, horrors that we witness in the news or that we hear about uh, from others um, in our communities. Um, and so, as I was saying, you know, this work started in the 60s and the 70s, and I think it's actually taken, it's been um, slowly growing uh, to be a greater and greater interest to researchers and social scientists, social behavioral scientists. Um, and I, I think it's, you know, eventually, I think it was, you know, uh, match made in heaven, so to speak, that it had to be in, somehow included in this broader rubric of positive psychology. And so, um, so you know, the work that we've been doing over the past 30 years or so, and the work that many others have been doing, um, I think, eventually became part of what we now know as this large area of research and work um, in positive psychology. Very interesting. Uh, going back a ways, if I'm understanding right, pro-social behavior is regarded as helping others and altruism is regarded as helping others um, at personal cost. Are those the basic definitions for those concepts? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, I think, you know, one of the things that we've come to understand over the last few decades is that um, we have made this important transition, I believe, that, you know, early on, we really tend, we tended to think of pro-social behaviors as sort of much more of a global homogenous sort of construct or concept. But actually, I think one of the advances over the last few decades is that we're now starting to understand uh, the important distinctions between very specific forms of pro-social behaviors. You know, that, that specific types of pro-social behaviors have distinct qualities and characteristics and they're related to distinct predictors. You know, they're different predictors that predict different forms of pro-social behaviors. And also there are different consequences to different forms of pro-social behaviors. And um, I think in our lab, that's one of the, that's been one of the main focus of our lab is to really try to disentangle um, these distinct forms of pro-social behaviors. But but in general, all of these behaviors fall under that very broad umbrella concept of pro-social behaviors, helping behaviors, mm. you know, behaviors, actions that benefit other people. 
And then within that, you know, for example, in one of our recent uh, published papers, we present a multidimensional model of prosocial behaviors. And we point out that prosocial behaviors differ as a function of who the target of the action is, who, who's the beneficiary. Also, it differs as a function of motives. You know, you can have prosocial behaviors that are selfishly motivated and others that are selflessly motivated, such as altruistic behaviors. Um, and there are also different uh, contextual uh, factors that can uh, that play can play a part in terms of the facilitating or inhibiting specific actions, prosocial actions. Fascinating. Okay, so the basic, what all pro-social behavior has in common is that there's some action taking place that that is intended to or that is benefiting others, or do both count? Well, uh, both count, but the broadest, broadest definition is uh, actions that benefit others. And then the intention is something that's very challenging to get at, but... Mm. But we think it's important because, um, you know, sometimes we engage, we do something nice for someone and maybe we didn't even realize that, you know, that it, that um, all the beneficial consequences of the action that we that we partook in. So um, so intention, you know, is, you know, it's the ghost in the machine, you know, it's sort of like trying to get at, uh, trying to discern um, what one person's real intention was behind an action. That's, that's obviously incredibly challenging, but, mm -hmm. but we do, we, we have made efforts to try to get at that uh, in different ways because we think it's important. Yeah. I've, I've got a, example to uh share if i may if sure. i may do so and get your get your take on it <laughs> yeah sure okay uh this so this was back in 2012 and i I'd, I'd been seeing different suggestions for what contributes to a sense of well-being and acts of kindness uh the effect that it has on the person performing the act of kindness jumped out as something maybe that would be the kind of dynamic that a community project could be built around. So I used a little bit of a, uh, a selfish motive for setting up the project. And that was, we asked people to anonymously um, reflect on their acts of kindness uh, to write it down. Like what, what, what was your act of kindness? And then how did it make you feel was the, the follow-up on it. Mm -hmm. So mm -hmm. it wasn't necessarily focused on the actual impact on the recipient, but it was more the, the psychological effects on the person performing it. Mm -hmm. um, now, this uh the way it played out was the we had so we had these like literal note cards <laughs> that we um 
we, we passed out. It, so it was, it was kind of a little bit of an inventory. We asked people if they had already done acts of kindness to maybe reflect on how that had affected them. Mm-hmm. And then proactively, um, you know, to do some more acts of kindness to, and then to reflect on it as well. Mm-hmm. And the Hy-Vees here in Lincoln and the public library system all distributed and gathered the cards. And during the, uh, the time when we were, you know, it was basically a September to December timeframe when we did this. And in the, in the processing part of it, we had uh, gathered all the cards as they came in and put them up in the window. They have the extremely large windows at the high V. And so it just made a beautiful display. Mm. And the hope was that people would come along and, and read it and get inspired and to spark more acts of kindness. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then for the finale, which was December 7th, the Sheldon Museum adopted our kindness project for theming their uh, winter festival. And they chose song selections with their Uh chamber singers Uh uh, and it was we brought all the cards and had them up in the windows at the sheldon museum wow and then uh in the spring so it was it was a beautiful evening of music and it was it was amazing uh and then in the spring in the in the setup of the project um we had approached the elementary schools around lincoln and they had tried to engage the students around this, uh, this, the kindness acts of kindness as well. And one in particular, Campbell Elementary, was um, extremely interested in participating. And we chose them to be the recipient of the cards after this event in the fall. So come spring, um, we had used paper that was embedded with wildflower seeds and we uh planted it so that come summer we had a we had a wildflower garden wow yeah so that was that was the actions of this uh kindness project yeah and the setup the story behind it actually was um a mother had lost her son to a drunk drunk driver Mm. and the media attention was just basically she saw it as kind of focusing on focusing the public's attention on the driver and sparking hostility Mm. and she wanted it she said it came to her almost in a a vision kind of a fever dream Mm -hmm. to ask the public to engage in acts of kindness and Mm. that was uh um this was a few years after after the event had happened but Mm -hmm. um the police investigator had come up uh from lawrence kansas where this had happened and he he shared a message of um personal responsibility about Mm -hmm. if you're gonna drink have a plan Mm. and it was uh the the mother and the office and the investigator they were able to share the story and the 
suggestion to engage in acts of kindness at many of the high schools around Lincoln and many other many other schools and wow yeah uh, so this this was the <laughs> this was kind of the first project that I'd uh Mm-hmm. sort of taking this idea um, mm-hmm. and tried to apply it at the community level. So that's that's the kind of thing that Positivity Matters is about. There's a little bit of history for listeners and one of the one of the foundations of where this thing got started. Yeah. Um, but yeah, so that's that's an example. So mm-hmm. from oh, the yeah. perspective of a pro-social behavior researcher, mm-hmm. what are your impressions? Wow. Well, I mean, um, that's a fantastic example um, on a large scale, obviously. Uh, there, I, I guess as you were telling the story, I was, you know, it's a pretty complex um, uh, series of events um, because you have things that are happening, obviously, at, at, at the person level, but also at the... Uh, broader community level, at the institutional level. Uh, And I think it's a really excellent example of the power of pro-social behaviors um, for, you know, for um, stimulating more positivity and more pro-social behaviors. And, you know, I think one of the things that inspired me to think about the work that we do in pro-social behaviors was actually studying the work that had been done on aggressive behaviors. And Mm. when we look at all the work that's been done on aggressive behaviors, so much of it really is relevant in understanding pro-social behaviors. I mean, in aggressive behaviors, we we know that there are distinct forms of aggressive behaviors, and those are each important to study and understand. But we also know that aggression is one of those Behave, human behaviors that can uh, instigate more aggression. Um, and, you know, and so there are intergroup and uh, interpersonal processes, mechanisms that can actually facilitate more aggression, you know, and there are social conditions and institutions and systems that can facilitate more aggression. And I think the same thing applies with pro-social behaviors. I think mm. there are possibilities, great possibilities, that I don't think we tap into for fostering more pro-social environments, more pro-social schools, more pro-social communities. Um, obviously, pro-social behaviors in the home. I mean, we we can start there <laughs> with you know how do we raise our children to be much more pro-social. Um, and and one thing that's also important to keep in mind is that, um, you know, it's not, I, I mean, sometimes I hear, I, I get people saying things like, oh, this is such a goody-goody, Pollyannish sort of, you know, uh, perspective and all this. And I, I want to be clear, you know, it's not that we expect that uh, humans are going to be you know, extremely pro-social or even extremely altruistic all the time. Um, but but it has to do more with the realism that um, we can create environments and communities and schools and homes 
and institutions that perhaps emphasize or perhaps um, encourage more of the pro-social behaviors and perhaps less of the antisocial behaviors and less of the aggressive behaviors. Uh, we're never mm -hmm. going to completely eliminate um, antisocial behaviors or aggressive behaviors or selfish motives or um, those sorts of things. You know, these are those are all part and parcel of our genetic makeup, evolutionary history. Uh, we we need to be able to defend ourselves from threats and from danger. Um, but on the other hand, um, there's so much research now that demonstrates all of the incredible positive benefits, ironically, pun intended, I guess, <laughs> of pro-social behaviors. Um, you know, it's not it's not just a marker of the moral standing of our communities or the moral standing of, of, a, of a person or an individual. If we think if we think about how is it that we judge the moral character of persons. Um, well, sure, you could listen to them and hear what they say. You could observe how they, what sort of empathy or sympathy they express. Um, but really the bottom line is that for most of us, the majority of us, vast majority of us, we really do judge people's character mostly on the basis of their actions, of their behaviors. You know, if we think about moral exemplars, historical moral exemplars or care exemplars, persons who we deem to be of strong moral character, it's most likely the case that we deem those persons to be strong moral character, not on just on what they said or how they feel, but it's gonna be mostly on what actions they took and how, what were those con the consequences of those actions? And so um, it is also the case that, um, you know, um, there's always the possibility of sort of contag contagion effects. And, you know, if, if, if persons in a given environment are, you know, predominantly acting in pro-social ways, then that's going to facilitate pro-social behaviors in that in that context. And so your example of acts of kindness is fantastic because what you did was really create these pro-social environments, these environments where not only did it become the norm to engage in pro-social behaviors and to talk about pro-social behaviors and like you said, to reflect on these pro-social acts that people have done, um, but it just made it very acceptable, socially acceptable, and actually rewarding, socially rewarding. Um, and, um, you know, all of those things really tap into very important uh, mechanisms um, that motivate us to to behave in, in different ways. Um, and so we can choose to create environments that facilitate pro-social behaviors, predominantly the majority, or enhance those kinds of actions. And similarly, of course, we can also create environments that, that actually foster aggressive and antisocial behaviors. 
Um, and I think, you know, um, those are the sorts of things that um, I think we want to make positive impact on our communities. Um, we should be spending much more time brainstorming and thinking about how do we foster and encourage and reward these pro-social behaviors in our schools, in our communities, um, uh, in our homes. Um, and, you know, we do, we've learned quite a bit about what are the sorts of factors that promote or inhibit pro-social behaviors. So it can be done. Tell us more. What are the <laughs> findings for what is, uh, you know, what does the best impact on facilitating more pro-social behavior and what are the, what are the factors that inhibit it? Sure. Well, let's see, where do we start? Um, <laughs> you know, uh, we probably know the most about promoting and fostering pro-social tendencies in, in our children, in our homes. Um, so I can mention a few things there and then we can maybe talk about some other contexts. But um, uh, we know that, you know, parenting matters and, uh, you know, how we raise our children matter. Um, and again, you know, important to acknowledge that, yes, we do have uh, a biological evolutionary history uh, that allows us to, <clears throat> to express both antisocial and pro-social tendencies. Um, but, you know, the... Uh, the context matters and the first context is uh, for most children is their home environment. Um, and in the home environment, uh, parents through various mechanisms transmit messages to their children about uh, prosociality and morality. And um, so they do so in uh, the kind of attachment relationship that they develop with their child from early on, uh, expressions of warmth and nurturance. Those are obviously an important aspect to pro-sociality um, that fosters empathy and sympathy, which are strongly associated with pro-social behaviors. Um, but parents also transmit messages through uh, the conversations that they have with them through the kinds of um, TV shows that they, or movies that they take their children to, um, through the books that they read to them, through their own actions, how they, you know, whether or not, to what extent do parents themselves model pro-social behaviors in front of their children. Um, they can also foster pro-sociality in terms of how they respond and react to when their children do something good. So there's a whole body of work, for example, on the use of rewards um, and whether parents reward their children with material goods, such as giving them gift or you know, giving them an ice cream cone when they've done something good um, versus showing love and uh, giving them what we call a social reward, praising them, expressing affection and love and approval. 
Uh, and we know from that work that in general, the use of social rewards is actually seems to be much more effective than the use of material rewards. Now, again, hmm. I want to say very quickly, that's not to say that we should never give our kids, you know, an ice cream cone for doing something good. What we're talking about here are, again, our probabilities. And we're talking about um, sort of like, you know, what, how should we balance the expression of uh, approval uh, when our children do something good? And also we should not forget that, you know, uh, giving your child, even if it's a material reward, that's better than ignoring or not even paying attention to when your child does something good. So everything is relative, of course, and we always need to be um, sort of cautious and not taking things to an extreme. Um, also, how do you discipline children when they do something wrong? Um, mm. There are do's and don'ts with that. Um, you know, if you the use of harsh corporal punishment, I know it's a for some people it's a it's it's debatable, but in general, I would argue that the overall evidence is pretty clear that the use of corporal punishment is in general not uh, conducive to at the very least to promoting pro-social behaviors. Uh, and in fact, it's been linked to um, uh, the promotion of aggressive behaviors. There's even a study, for example, that we published, boy, I can't remember the year now, but um, um, you know, in a pretty uh, top tier journal, research journal, we demonstrated that parents' use of severe discipline when children were 14 months of age, still had negative impact on their behaviors uh, almost a decade later. Um, so um, these are things, these are bodies of research that is really, really difficult to, um, to um, sort of ignore, um, you know, and, Similarly, with the work on media, exposure to violent media, again, of course, there's there are uh, groups out there that, that push back against this evidence. But again, the overwhelming evidence, different kinds of research designs um, demonstrate that um, exposure to violent media in children begets uh, potentially begets aggression and, and uh, violent behaviors later in life. And uh, whenever I talk about these things, by the way, I um, like when I talk about these things in class, I always remind my students that, you know, <clears throat> if media didn't have this kind of impact on our behaviors and uh, be hard to explain why corporations and companies spend millions and millions of dollars on research, marketing research <laughs> and development. Uh, you know, these commercials and all these sorts of things that are out there. Um, it's, uh, it's pretty 
obvious and pretty blatant that media does impact our behaviors. Um, and mm. I, think, I think even if you don't, you know, you can, you can get into the nitty gritty of like this study was flawed and blah, 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 and all this, but I'm telling you, um, I think this is a situation where money, money matters and money, money says a lot about, um, how we can actually manipulate and um, modify per people's behaviors uh, through the use of smart marketing campaigns. Yeah, yeah, that's. Uh, I know that's uh, done deliberately. I was uh, in a class on nonprofit management, and one of my classmates was in uh, with an organization that. Um, did advocacy for narrative structure of um, radio programming. I forget what country in Africa it was in, but they were uh, trying to encourage, uh, uh, I guess, safe sex, more, mm -hmm, you know, mm -hmm, things mm -hmm. to facilitate safe sex. Right. So I know, I know there's entities that are, you know, having an effect on the narrative structure um, of the, content of what we watch mm -hmm. i don't know if that's always the case i i heard some research uh a researcher by the name of dr keltner from i believe uc berkeley had been a consultant on the positive side of things with that uh pixar movie inside mm -hmm. out looking at mm -hmm. emotions yeah yeah um yeah so absolutely. yeah yeah, I wanted my... I wanted to return for a quick yeah. second to the point that you were making with the children getting, um, you know, se severely disciplined as mm -hmm. youngsters. Uh, mm -hmm. I think you said fourteen months, mm -hmm. and the reason why I wanted to do that is uh, sometimes people listen to research like this, and you know, sometimes parents have had a change of heart and their approach mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. and uh, become overwhelmed sometimes when they hear about this kind of mm -hmm. research and are mm -hmm. fraught with guilt. Um, mm -hmm. So mm -hmm. maybe if you wouldn't mind, mm -hmm. if there's any parents listening that, or something <laughs> like this may have happened, like, yeah, what would you tell them now? Yeah. Yeah. Well, yeah, that's great. I mean, I've, um, uh, you know, sometimes I, I've given talks to parent groups um, in different uh, contexts, and um, and this is one of those areas where I do get uh, pushback sometimes. And you know, I mean, even if I may, I, I you know I can relate to my own upbringing. Um, you know, growing up uh, in as a kid from Puerto Rico, my parents, both Puerto Rican, Latinos, Latino parents, uh, very traditional. And, you know, I mean, there was nothing scarier than, you know, if I did something wrong and I knew my, my dad was going to come home and, <laughs> um, you know, chase after us um, um, to discipline us for doing for whatever we did wrong. Um, so clearly, uh, the use of corporal punishment is um, something that many parents resort to sometimes. Um, 
So there's a, a couple of ways of thinking about this. Um, one is, as I said before, we, we need to be cautious. And, you know, I'm, I don't think, I think it's just um, smart to not react, overreact to uh, these kinds of research findings and, you know, and just say, oof, well, you know, my poor kid, I, you know, I, I spanked my kid and they're going to turn out to be a serial killer or something like that. I mean, you know, uh, with all th these research studies uh, on parenting and all these predictors of developmental and child outcomes, um, these studies don't, are not, um, don't account for the majority of the uh, variants. I'm trying to think of a easier way of saying this, but uh, you know, it, these effects are significant. That means they're reliable effects, but they're not extremely strong effects. So, mm -hmm. so the first thing to keep in mind is that what we're talking about here is more like um, trying to put to, we're trying to piece together a jigsaw puzzle. And the more of these kinds of um, characteristics or pieces are in the child's life, then, you know, then the greater and the greater likelihood that that child might um, experience some negative developmental outcome later in life or some positive developmental outcome or a combination of both. Um, and so, you know, there isn't one specific factor that's going to absolutely, you know, determine the outcome of a child. And so if you, you know, use spanking uh, in raising your child, it doesn't necessarily mean that your child's gonna turn out to be, you know, terrible person or something like that. Uh, or traumatized or have mental health problems. Um, so that's the first thing to keep in mind. But the other thing to keep in mind is that um, there's there are some studies that suggest that um, if you um, sporadically use like mild spanking uh, just to get your child's attention, that that doesn't seem to necessarily be linked to negative outcomes in your child. Mm. Um, but um, remember that whenever we use spanking um, um, as a discipline technique, we're modeling aggressive behaviors. We're transmitting the message that the use of force is acceptable under certain circumstances, I guess. But remember, young children aren't going to be quite cognitively able to understand what those circumstances are. Uh, that it's an, it might be an acceptable way of resolving differences or resolving problems. You know, if you overuse spanking um, as a form of discipline, then you actually might be fostering fear in your child, which is not desirable, obviously, because you're now placing your relationship at risk with your child. Um, so that it, 
may over time become more and more negative relation relationship. Uh, uh, sometimes what children learn to do over time is they become fearful, scared. And so um, what they try to do then is they try to hide when they've done something wrong. Um, and instead of um, maintaining an open, positive, close relationship with your child, you're, you're basically enhancing the, the opposite of that type of relationship. Uh, and then the other thing that is also of concern is that if you over rely on the use of corporal punishment, then as the child grows um, and um, the child might, that actually might escalate into, you know, where the child starts to push back or question or rebel or, um, and, and so you could have yourself, you you could find yourself in a in quickly in an escalating, really terrible um, interaction between you and your child. Um, so, I think there are lots of reasons why we should, at the very least, and this is what I usually conclude with: is you know why take the chance? Why risk it? Why why not err on the safe side and uh, try to find alternative ways of disciplining your child, you know, ways that, in which the child, in which your child might actually be able to learn what is the moral message? What is the moral rule? What is the moral value? Um, you know, if they're, if they're very fearful of you and really aroused and scared, you know, even if you're trying to explain to them why what they did was wrong, they might not even, you know, uh, learn that because they are, they may be too overwhelmed with the negative emotions and arousal uh, in that situation. So, mm. so I think, I think, again, it's worth trying to consider alternative ways of disciplining children. Uh, but again, I'm not here to say that you should never use um, spanking. But I am here to say that you should probably avoid over-relying on spanking. And certainly not, you don't want to use very harsh spanking corporal punishment. That certainly is not going to buy you any um, favors. Thank you for returning to that point and clarifying. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Well, I want to say thank you for doing the Values in Action Institute's Survey of Character Strengths. If you're listening to this podcast, you can do the same at www.viacharacter.org. And there is a free way to take this survey where you will wind up with a list of your character strengths in rank order and the idea behind that is that if you're looking for ways to elevate your well-being to possibly use those strengths as reflection points from which to create new habits, perhaps. Uh, and Gus, your top five came out as curiosity, teamwork, love, judgment, perspective, 
my hope why I like to talk about this is in case there's anyone out there that doesn't have a positive framework by which to think about themselves and others, uh, here's here's a framework for you. Uh, if you have difficulty practicing kindness to yourself and maybe to others, um, maybe this is a, a bridge that you can use to step over and to more constructive thinking and action. Mm-hmm. Uh, so thank you for doing that. And how out of curiosity, do you see <laughs> maybe a couple of these strengths, which are your favorites and how do you see them playing out through the work that you do? Wow. <laughs> um, well, first of all, I want to thank you for encouraging me to take the strengths survey. I, I think I had taken it a long time ago. <laughs> um, and, uh, but obviously I, didn't remember um, what my results were. Uh, so I retook it and, uh, um, you know, it's, uh, it's quite interesting. I, I, I do remember uh, when uh, Marty Seligman and Chris Peterson uh, worked on developing this uh, strength survey way back when. And, uh, um, you know, I, I remember talking to Chris, um, you know, he, unfortunately he passed away uh, much too early, but I remember talking to him when he was, when he and Marty were working on this and it was, um, I was really, really excited about this strength uh, survey um, because um, it actually, you know, at the time and probably even still today, you know, there was this void out there for an assessment, um, you know, um, of all these positive qualities of humans and persons. And um, I recall Marty talking about how, you know, psychology, for example, has, you know, has devoted themselves for many, many years to, you know, creating and developing the DSM, the Diagnostic you know, mental health inventory. Um, and of course, we know that the, the DSM is not really a, a diagnostic or an assessment tool of health per se. It's quite the opposite. It's pathology and illness, right? And so I think this VIA strength survey, I think was a, was an effort at least to try and move us towards uh, in this in this healthy you know well-being positive direction um i you know the the strength surveys i think speaks for itself i mean i i can relate to my top five uh very nicely um i think probably it's mostly reflected in how i conduct my research and how i work with other people I, you know i have my cultural resiliency and learning center, for example, and every place that I've been at, at University of Missouri, for example, I had a center, a children, families across culture center. And at the University of Nebraska, Lincoln, when, where I started, I was there for 17 years. You know, I also had my, uh, my uh, Latino research initiative, uh, uh, which was really uh, a center uh, 
focused on all the work that I've done with Latino families. Um, so teamwork has been, or team science has always been, uh, it's a core part of my values of, I think how science, good science can be conducted. Um, my curiosity, I think uh, speaks for itself as a social scientist, social behavioral scientist. I, I've, uh, I definitely expressed that uh, aspect of myself on a daily basis uh, and over the course of my career and lifetime. Uh, you know, I I try and foster these very positive, loving relationships with um, my friends and my family and uh, and my colleagues and my students. Um, so, yeah, I, you know, it, it, it's, uh, it's, it's pretty good. You know, I, I, I think it, it shows some face validity, at least I think. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. That's, uh, I think it's maybe, uh, a stepping stone, uh, for the model that I'm, working on for human flourishing uh is the acronym is happy life mm. and it is health so physical and mental health aesthetic experience or natural and created beauty uh, the first p is for play uh, the second P, initially I had it as pleasure, and then I switched it to positive emotion. And then most recently, I've uh, seen this concept of psychological richness, which includes intense positive and negative emotion. Mm. Um, the why for yes saying, it's a, a Nietzschean reference, kind of the, the general yes to life, and then maybe constructing and living one's core values. And I see that as the place where these strengths finders may come into mm. uh, playing a positive role. If someone hasn't taken that yeah. step of self-reflection, maybe it's a, you know, a mm -hmm. spark for that potentially. Mm -hmm. uh, mm -hmm. The L is uh, life by that. It's just a points to biophilia, nature connectedness, um, being a part of the web of life as a whole and having that mindfulness. Mm -hmm. I for information, shorthand for the goodness of knowledge and wisdom. Mm -hmm. The F is for friendship, uh, like the spectrum from potentiality of just a positive social interaction to those deep lifelong bonds. Mm -hmm. And the E is for engagement, flow, absorption, okay. and experience. So happy life. That's the, uh, <laughs> the uh, nine factors i think that are most fundamental mm. for human flourishing and yeah. uh the uh i think the way that i've conceptualized this with pro-social behavior is I, my understanding is a, a researcher a baumeister had mm -hmm. sort of teased out this idea that we have a, a psychological need to belong mm -hmm. um and from what I've seen, the 
response to that need if it's done in a pro-social manner mm -hmm. um, is probably going to do the most to uh, cause the formation of re positive relationships and mm -hmm. the deepening of relationship quality mm. and I was thinking about the specificity of pro-social behaviors and I don't know if this actually like exists in the literature, but I was just trying to come up with some uh, academic jargon to make it sound cool. <laughs> so, <laughs> the, uh, so the flavors of pro-social behavior that uh, jump out would be the, the kind that you've, that we've been talking about, like, mm -hmm. you know, maybe even to the point where someone's suffering and you're, you do something to benefit them to alleviate right. that suffering, right. maybe even to your own detriment. Mm. So you've got, I would describe that as a uh, compassionate pro-sociality mm -hmm. where mm -hmm. there's the mm -hmm. alleviation of suffering is sort of a central feature of it. Yeah. The others, I would say there's just with uh, mentoring and, and teaching and things like that, mm -hmm. where you just mm -hmm. see the, the positive potential in others and you, you do what you can to like build up their capabilities and mm -hmm. draw out that potential. Yeah. Um, so maybe like a generative prosociality and then in the area of play, like in the arts, games, mm -hmm. humor, mm -hmm. um, I think the, I don't know if it's Greek or Latin, but uh, ludus or ludic. Uh, so maybe a ludic prosociality. So those mm. are the, those mm. are my three, uh, okay. uh, in a, uh, my three jargon words for the main prosocial behavior that I'm yeah. kind of reflecting on in terms of trying to build community projects around the, the mm. generative, the ludic and the compassionate. So, oh, nice. Uh, from the yeah. point of view of someone who's actually actually doing the research, mm -hmm. how does that sound as as mm -hmm. a a way to approach uh, practicing prosociality? Or if yeah. one were so moved intellectually to study it, it would that be yeah. a potential framework to explore? Yeah, I mean, um, yeah, I mean, I think absolutely. Um, first of all. As I alluded to earlier, um, you know, I, I, I think the first important step is to step away from thinking of all pro-social behaviors as being equal or equivalent. And, um, and so this is definitely one, one way, um, you know, I think out in the literature, there are different more nuanced conceptualizations of the kinds of pro-social behaviors. And you do get into this sort of like um, thinking process about, um, you know, do we come up with identifying specific forms, more specific forms of pro-social behaviors, um, you know, at the very, at a very sort of, for lack of other, better term at the very sort of micro level um you know very very specific you know like sharing behavior or donating behavior or something like that um and then uh you can think about like other ways of distinguishing and categorizing different forms of pro-social behaviors i think your what you're proposing is something um more sort of in the middle 
um, not too micro, but obviously not global. Mm -hmm. And so I think that is that that can be very helpful, very con uh, conducive to good work. Um, and I like how you do distinguish between um, these forms and you do so in a manner that's uh, connected very clearly to uh, uh, one can easily imagine how these different forms of pro-social behaviors are manifested um, in in the real world con in real world contexts. Um, you know, um, with the with um, you know, I I mean, I probably have to think about it a little more, but. Uh, you know, I, I, you know, I think that it is different than, for example, the uh, the conceptual model that we we've adopted. Ours is, you know, we identify six distinct forms of pro-social behaviors, um, and as I mentioned before, it's uh, it really takes into account, uh, tries to take into account the underlying motives, the selfless versus selfish motives, intrinsic versus extrinsic motives, um, as well as um, it tries to take into account um, the different targets. Um, you know, targets is one of those things that I think is uh, important to remember and to sort of take note of. Um, I remember one time I was sort of surfing through TV channels and I came across a TV show, somebody who was interviewing these two um, uh, mothers and their children were, their little children were playing on the living room carpet behind them. And um, the interviewer was, uh, the mothers were white, um, they, they look like white European American mothers. Um, and the interviewer was uh, asking them questions like, oh, so you you teach your children to be empathic and, and um, considerate and respectful of others and to be kind to others. And, and the mothers were like, well, yes, of course, we, we teach them to be that way. Uh, you know, we, we, we uh, those are, those are things that we learn from, you know, reading the Bible and so on. And then, then on the bottom of the screen, um, you know how they label the person that they're interviewing. <laughs> it, 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 you know, it showed up on the bottom of the screen. These were mothers of um, a KKK uh, Ku Klux Klan chapter, and. Mm -hmm. And it dawned on me at that moment, and you know, maybe I'm slow to learn or whatever. This was several years ago, obviously, but uh, it dawned on me at that moment that, you know, we have so many persons out there who think of themselves as moral persons. They think of themselves as pro-social. They think of themselves as even altruistic and extremely generous and compassionate. Um, but it's clear that they don't express that pro-sociality um, to all, <laughs> mm. to, to all others, right? Um, um, 
you know, there are some who will are extremely altruistic and pro-social towards their own family members or to um, persons that they think, you know, are they deem to be loyal to them or, you know, I'm not going to name names, but, um, you know, and, um, and, you know, some of them, you know, I mean, you know, even if we think about historical figures like Hitler himself, who was Christian and, you know, seems i'm i'm certain that he was very pro-social towards you know his own family members and people that were that he was close to but clearly these persons are also capable of atrocious you know harmful um, terrible acts of violence and hostility and towards persons that they don't deem worthy of their compassion or their gen generosity so you know so so we've in recent years we've turned our attention uh, to trying to really discern you know uh, it's really moved us away from just thinking about these things as you know blanketly being expressed or manifested across you know all situations to to all persons but you know um, it's really pushed us to move away from this sort of dispositional general trait like sort of thing and pushed us to really think about how to understand these behaviors in these much more specific contexts and in the context of who are the recipients or possible recipients of these behaviors. Um, and this is really incredibly critical right now in our in this day and age, as we know, there's so much incredible divisiveness and in our society and in our societies, there's conflict, there's intergroup um, conflict and tensions like never before. Um, and, um, you know, there's incredible social injustice that exists in our world um, and inequities. And, um, and so to me, all of this tells me that we need to find ways to promote and foster altruism uh, in general, but especially in persons of privilege and persons of power and persons of wealth um, because, you know, they have those resources, they have the influence, they have the power. And so it's going to really take an extra amount of generosity. Oh, I'm not sure how to say it or altruism, you know, for them to be willing to share a bit more of, of those resources that they have, be willing to share those resources with persons who don't um, currently have access to those resources and to that capital and to that power. Um, so, and, it, and in reality, if we step back and we think about it, that's really what a true democracy 
should look like. It should be uh, a system whereby there's much more equity and um, you know shared distribution of resources and wealth and power. I think I probably could be wrong, and I'm maybe I'm sure some political scientists or historians will probably bash me for saying this, but I think that that's what our forefathers were trying to create a much more just and fair system. Uh, after all, they themselves were very wealthy, educate, highly educated persons. Um, uh, and they were trying to get away you know, from these monarchy systems and other kinds of systems that where it, the power and the wealth was centralized. Um, so, so I guess I would say, you know, I think um, this approach that you're proposing is fantastic. Um, um, but at some point, I think we're going to have to, you know, face this critical intersection of, of trying to understand how generative and uh, compassionate and ludic forms of prosociality um, can be fostered and enhanced uh, towards, you know, most persons and not just um, be uh, only privileged persons that are on the receiving end of that, of that charity and, and generosity. Yeah, we'd uh, started touching on potential for uh, media it seems mm -hmm. like first observing the the negative effect that it can have but uh yeah I'm envisioning maybe some media strategy on the other side of it yeah. <laughs> perhaps and oh yeah reaching Absolutely. people in positions of power perhaps mm, yeah yeah i mean you know we've had i i would argue that you know that there are several good examples of the power of media for good. Um, I often talk about, um, you know, um, Sesame Street shows like that, you know, PBS shows and the power of educational TV shows. And Sesame Street is one of those that has been pretty well documented as a show that is linked to pro-social behaviors in kids. Mm -hmm. um, but, you know, Dora the Explorer, Barney, um, other shows like that. Um, uh, you know, it's interesting because in the early years of Disney movies, they were, you know, they received a lot of criticism because they many of those early films really fostered negative stereotypes about mm. persons of color and about women and girls. Um, but actually, um, uh, I think it was 2012, one of my former graduate students, she published a, a, a study with a colleague in communications, um, in the School of Communications at BYU, uh, where they did, uh, they actually did did a uh, analysis of Disney movies and demonstrated that that at least um, 
more recently, uh, Disney movies have changed dramatically, and they do they do uh, uh, exhibit high levels of pro-social behaviors. They they do now show much more diversity. You know, and main characters that are women and girls, and um, and um, and you know, um, and so you know. TV shows and movies, um, you know, and, and by the way, I always remind my students that, you know, sometimes we, people are like, yeah, but you know, violence sells and sex sells and there's lots of violent movies out there and um, sexualized movies as well. But, you know, pro-social movies also sell. I mean, if we think about some of them, major grossing films of all time, E.T. and, you know, some of these uh, Disney movies and, and whatnot, you know, posit positivity also sells, <laughs> you know. Um, it matters, I hear. <laughs> yeah, it matters. From what I hear, it matters. Um, and so, you know, I think there's good examples out there. Um, even... Even for example, I, I I point out how cigarette smoking has was it was sort of uh, you know uh, the uh, evolution of cigarette smoking in this country, and you know at least I'm old enough to remember when everyone used you know, it seemed like almost everyone was smoking cigarettes and everything, and and uh, you know slowly over time the research you know, the good research demonstrated all of the negative consequences of cigarette smoking and nicotine and, uh, you know, and when we came to realize that, you know, this was not necessarily very healthy for us, you know, then all of a sudden there were mass media campaigns and, uh, and, and that led, and then there was the research that um, discovered that it's not even just cigarette smoking, but it's also secondhand smoke, right? You, I don't know if you probably remember, but I remember when the uh, smoking uh, bans in public places and restaurants and things like that first first popped up and. There was tremendous backlash from businesses and from groups. You know, it's like, oh, they're infringing on our right to smoke and all this. But you know, people were like, yeah, well, you can you can smoke if you want, but I don't want to inhale that smoke. You know, you're you're causing harm to me as well. Um, so, so you know, that took a, a you know that that took a foothold and. Um, and we are where we are right now. And, you know, we've seen the tremendous steep decline in cigarette smoking. Now, of course, there's vaping and all kinds of other stuff out there. And there's still lots of cigarette smoking in other parts of the world. But at least in the U.S., cigarette smoking per se has dropped tremendously, significantly, you know. And that was, I would argue, I would I would point to the mass media campaigns that were, you know, put out there 
by the government, by the CDC and, and others that basically educated the public about all the potential harmful consequences of cigarette smoking and secondhand smoking. Um, so yeah, I think, I think there are great possibilities out there uh, for enhancing pro-social behaviors and creating you know, much more equitable and fair and just systems and communities and schools. And, uh, but that would be another several hours of a podcast. (laughs) (laughs) And I'm, you may have to go off and teach a class soon from what I understand. Is that the case? Yes, I do. That's why (laughs) I have to, I have to. All right. Uh, Well, maybe uh, briefly. No, I I still have like, you know, a few minutes, 10 minutes. So so, yeah. Excellent. By the way, I I don't know if this is, if this is an omen, but I'm looking out my window and there's a beautiful rainbow (laughs) across the sky. (laughs) There you go. (laughs) Is it a a double rainbow yet? (laughs) Uh, No, not quite. (laughs) We'll, yeah. we'll, we'll hope for a double rainbow way <laughs> across the sky. There we go. <laughs> have you, have you ever seen that uh, viral video clip of the, the gentleman uh, witnessing a double rainbow? Uh, no, I have I, not. Please I send encourage... it to me. <laughs> yes, I will do. That's what I All was. Right. <laughs> so if things are good, what about a double rainbow? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Well, yeah, that's great. Yeah, Yeah, no, actually, that that would be kind of a image of one of the uh, one of the motifs that uh, my father left me with. He, uh, I believe, he encountered the negative aspects of cigarette smoking from its. deleterious effects on heart health and Mm. Mm. is no longer (laughs) with us since 2011 Uh but when he passed one of the things that i did um was just to try to reflect on his Mm -hmm. his life and you know what he did and um Mm. the things he said and to see if there was something that you know i could hold on to and one of the things that came to mind was uh don't let the good life get in the way of a better life. So oh, that was, uh, that's nice. I like that. Yeah. So yeah, one like rainbow is good. <laughs> Who is better? <laughs> wow. Yeah. <laughs> so, anyways, um, but yeah. So looking looking towards the future, um, you know, in the with the field of pro-social behavior research and mm-hmm. uh, your own with your own resources as a as a part of that ecosystem um where do you hope this this field goes oh wow well um and and let's say i'll give you another kicker for a thought prompt let's say some private foundation or government says hey here's 50 million dollars go run fly (laughs) <laughs> give us a double rainbow <laughs> wow uh do you happen to have 
Uh, Jeff I Bezos don't phone number or Mark Zuckerberg <laughs> or <laughs> Elon Musk or someone. Um, <laughs> yeah. Um, well, I think, um, wow, that's, that's, um, yeah. yeah. Uh, first of all, you know, you're, you're playing right into my fantasy <laughs> <laughs> mindset here, um, which, you know, it's, kind of a nice thing to do once in a while but um yeah where could i fly well um i guess two things come to mind um right off the bat i'm still as a developmental scientist i can't get can't help but get away from that core training and that orientation that i have and, and so that pushes and moves me to um think about um programs um interventions that that would be designed to really help um our families um you know i if we think about the again going back to the terrible things that are that 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 we observe uh, conflicts and wars and shootings and all those sorts of things. Um, and, uh, and, and maybe especially things like racism and prejudice and um, those, those processes, um, mechanisms. Um, those are things that are transmitted from one generation to the next. Um, I, I, you know, I don't know, maybe I've become too cynical about these things, but I I just don't think those things will ever go completely away. Um, but I do think that we can uh, we can reduce um, reduce those hostile negative um, attitudes and beliefs. Uh, towards diverse others uh, and it's got to start in the home it's got to start in the home environment because um, um, that's that's where so much of it originates um, children from a young age um, who are taught and learn to hate persons who don't look like them or who don't share the same beliefs, who might act in different ways. Um, so um, I think, you know, I sort of half joke about this sometimes with my in my class, but you know, we we uh, we require persons, most persons at least. <laughs> to you know get a driver's license to learn how to drive a car and um you know but anyone can become a parent and uh, you know a lot of parents will take Lamaze classes and sort of learn how to you know create a more positive birth environment uh, uh but then after that sort of like you're on your own <laughs> good luck you know mm. and um and unfortunately most of us the only thing the only source of information about 
how to raise a, a child comes from our own personal experiences. Um, so, so I think more programs aimed and designed to really help caregivers and parents to uh, provide them with tools and help them figure out ways to maybe enhance the likelihood that their child might grow up to be healthy and uh, pro-social and, um, you know, reach their maximum and, and thrive to the fullest. Uh, so I don't know. So that would be one, one, one thing, I guess, maybe half of the money. But then the other half of it, I think, you know, uh, that part of it is a long-term sort of intervention because it's going to take generations. Um, but for the more immediate uh, crises that we're facing, we need interventions in our social institutional systems. Um, and I think, and you know, this brings us back to creating these pro-social environments, these environments that foster pro-sociality, much like the example that you gave, but um, 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 you know, like in some of our professional schools, you know, some of them, sometimes the students take ethics courses, um, but, you know, usually it's like one ethics course and it's a requirement maybe, and that's it. Um, but clearly there are a number of persons who become professionals who become leaders, community leaders and industry leaders and, um, uh, you know, and they acquire that wealth and those resources and those privileges. Uh, and somewhere, somehow along, along the path, they seem, even if they had pro-social tendencies early on or earlier in their lives, somewhere along the path, it seems like many of them have lost, lost their way <laughs> and they've lost their connection, that, that important human connection to, to all of us that, you know, that, that perspective that we're all on the same planet, on the same boat in the universe. And, um, and, um, you know, um, and so I think we need interventions at, um, at the system level, um, again, in our schools, in our industries, you know, uh, in our government, obviously. Um, um, and I got to admit, that's that to me actually is much more challenging um, um, because I'm not, I'm not sure that there are, um, many great examples out there. I think there are some companies that are, you know, sort of social responsible companies and, 
um, maybe we could start by looking and learning from those companies. Actually, the Gallup organization is one of those or organizations that has implemented positive psychology principles and approach. Um, but how do we make that a part of our other social institutions and system and more in, inherent part of our um, systems that we all, that we're all immersed in? Um, so that would, I don't know. I don't know if that's a great answer to your question, but those would be my two wishes. And I, I, I still sh should get a third wish, right? Isn't it supposed to be? Two yeah. Wishes? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Sure. <laughs> yeah. Okay. All right. Yeah. Well, we could start with those two. All right. Well, maybe we'll, maybe you'll be able to return to the podcast when you have the the third wish. <laughs> well, yeah, just like I said, just get me the you know phone number of. <laughs> <laughs> we'll we'll get this we'll get this into their podcast playlist somehow. <laughs> yeah, that might be a great hacking first step. hacking for good. <laughs> <laughs> yep. Well, Gus, thank you so much for being a guest on Positivity Matters. Well, you're so very welcome, and uh, this was a pleasure and an honor, and I look forward to watching or listening more to more of your podcasts, and yeah, hopefully we can connect in person someday. I wish I could attend your conference, but I don't think I'm, those dates would work for me, unfortunately, but good luck with that. Yeah, listeners, if you want to find out more about that conference, you can go to www.positivitymatters.org backslash day of happiness. That is coming up Saturday, March 23rd in Lincoln, Nebraska at Bennett Martin Public Library, fourth floor auditorium. We're going to celebrate the United Nation International Day of Happiness, which is officially March 20th. We're moved. It's a Wednesday this year, so we're moving it to set the Saturday following, and it is also the 25th birthday of this field of positive psychology. So it's it's a double rainbow. <laughs> <laughs> there you go. Love it. All right. Thank you so much. You're welcome. Take care. Yeah. All right. Bye bye.